Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and this show's all about comics, movies, and TV shows. Now, most of this year is going to be spent making my way through various miniseries and whatnot, you see. For those of you who don't know, my show has an eight-episode structure to it. I spend six episodes talking about... whatever. Then I spend the seventh episode with Chris Hunningwell talking about one of the DC Paradox Press line of big books. The eighth episode is always, always, always dedicated to Smallville. And then I start all over again. Now, I've been known to use those six episodes for a mini-series dedicated to one topic, or theme, or idea, or character, or just whatever else. And after my epic, epic, epic 100th episode comes out, I plan to spend the rest of 2015 and a good bit of 2016 making my way through several six-episode miniseries. Because of that, for right now, I'm just enjoying the downtime before things get really out of control. I mean, to me, it makes sense to make the most of it right now by talking about comics that mostly have just nothing to do with each other. Now, a while back, I went through sort of a, a Batman phase. And I gotta tell you, my Batman fandom's taking a real beating in the last 10 years or so because, let's face it, Batman fans tend to be assholes. So, because I'm sick of skipping past those damned aggravating Facebook memes that always have to make fun of Superman in order to uh, in order to proclaim Batman's awesomeness, I've kind of had a sour taste in my mouth when it comes to... well, when it comes to pretty much anything related to Batman. In fact, so bad was it that I made a point of totally ignoring Batman's 75th anniversary last year, specifically because I knew it'd piss off Batman fans if they found out about it. Which isn't likely since my listeners aren't assholes, but if by chance one of them heard me give Batman the middle finger by way of omission, hey, I view that as mission accomplished. If that seems a little bit immature to you, just keep in mind, the cause of all of that really started back in 2013. It was Superman's 75th anniversary, and a lot of us Superman fans were basically just marking the time by posting stuff on Facebook about it. You know, just how awesome Superman is, how cool it is that it's his 75th anniversary, on and on and on. And as I recall, this really hit probably a fever pitch right around the time that uh, Man of Steel came out. But then, out of nowhere, there came some retarded fucking Facebook meme heralding the fact that 2013 marked Batman's 74th anniversary. I mean, honestly, who really gives a fuck about any character's 74th anniversary? But that meme took off like wildfire, and it was to the point where I even saw some civilians share that stupid fucking thing on Facebook with these little remarks along the lines of, Holy cow, I didn't know Batman's been around this long. And as a result, Superman's 75th anniversary got all but fucking ignored by at least some people out there. So... As retaliation, I decided to spend a good chunk of 2014 celebrating Superman's 76th 
anniversary. Because, hey, that's no more arbitrary and disrespectful than celebrating Batman's 74th anniversary, right? Do unto others and all that shit. Remember, people, payback's a virgin. It's not a bitch, because bitches are easy. But anyway, then I remembered that my Batman fandom goes back a pretty long way. In fact, I dare say it predates most asshole Batman fans' lifetimes. So, does it really make sense to let a bunch of douche-nozzle Batman fans ruin the character for me like that? Mm, I don't know. Maybe not. So, I dug out some Batman comics that I remember loving as a kid. And you know what? It was, it was as though everything that I ever loved about this character had just come back to life. I mean, you know, for the moment, forget about the Grant Morrison Bat God or the overly realistic Chris Nolan stuff for a minute and just enjoy this stuff. This was just plain, old-fashioned, good Batman here. As I've said before, along those lines, as I've said before, I was incredibly invested in, in Tim Drake becoming Robin. I felt like Tim Drake and I were, we were on sort of weird parallel journeys in a, in a way. Tim was working to become Robin and I was working to create a comic book collection. And a big part of that collection was Batman comics. Because of that, because I always kind of related to Tim, I was also very invested in Tim Drake as Robin. Once he became Robin, I couldn't wait to start reading stories where he and Batman worked together again, had adventures, and all that stuff. There was a lot of emotional content for me in seeing Batman and Robin back in action. Now, understand, that wasn't Tim Drake's only appeal to me, but it was appealing to see how Tim affected the Batman and Robin dynamic. And that's why I picked out these issues to talk about here in this first segment. I mean, yeah, technically there were a few stories before this one where Tim was Robin, and then, and you know what? He even had some really neat adventures and stuff, but this, for my money, is where the Bruce Wayne-Tim Drake dynamic really got established. By and large, these themes and values and uh, informed how Batman and Robin interacted with each other for a few years, and it all started here. Where is here? This is Batman number 467 through 469, a little story entitled Shadow Box. So here we go. Writer is Chuck Dixon, penciler is Tom Lyle, inker is Scott Hanna, colorist is Adrienne Roy, letterer is Todd Klein, editors are Denny O'Neill and Kelly Puckett, and cover artist is Tom Lyle. Batman number 467, Shadow Box Part 1. Batman and Robin take down an arms deal being headed by the Ghost Dragons, a street gang from Asia. The way things look, it sure seems like King Snake is still alive in spite of the events of the first Robin miniseries. Later, the Ghost Dragons hijack the feds and reclaim their weaponry. Batman and Robin attempt to stop them, but the Ghost Dragons use their recovered artillery and temporarily disable both of them. Lynx, 
the ghost dragon second in command wants to stick around blowing shit up with her bazooka but the the dragons eventually talk her into retreating when the police get closer and closer to the crime scene later on gordon shows batman the body of a dead ghost dragon wearing a replica of robin's costume somebody's gunning for tim meanwhile lynx reports their success to king snake who is indeed alive and well Batman number 468, Shadowbox Part 2. Gotham City is a war zone. As the ghost dragons wreak havoc everywhere, Bruce tells Tim to stay home for the next few nights. Bruce says it's because Tim's falling behind with his schoolwork, but Tim isn't buying a word of that. Later, Batman gets shot during a melee with the ghost dragons as he attempts to break up uh, their battle with with a rival street gang. Later, Alfred patches him up, and Batman prepares to go back out, but Robin ultimately convinces him not to do anything until he gets a little bit of rest. Later on, someone drops a dead Robin at Commissioner Gordon's feet. Gordon turns it over to Batman, who discovers that it's filled with jewels. Whoever is threatening Tim is getting closer and closer all the time. Batman number 469, Shadowbox Part 3. After finding jewels inside of the dead bird, Batman's determined to keep working solo until this whole episode's over and done with. He studies the jewels hidden inside the dead bird and realizes he's being challenged to a face-off with the King Snake aboard the Pacific Jewel, a ship presently birthed in Gotham Harbor. Batman decides to go to bed at that point, realizing that he'll need his rest because one way or the other, this ends tonight. Meanwhile, Commissioner Gordon practically has Chinatown under martial law. As all that's going on, Tim finds out about the Pacific Jewel being birthed in Gotham Harbor as well as the showdown that Batman's heading into and decides to swing into action. Meanwhile, Batman penetrates the Pacific Jewel's defenses and seriously injures several ghost dragon street punks before getting cornered himself by Kingsnake. Batman easily defeats the blind martial artists before getting caught in the crosshairs of Lynx's high-powered rifle. But right then, Robin swoops in on her, ruins her shot, and saves Batman's life. Lynx then kicks the shit out of Robin and then leaves, threatening vengeance. Vengeance! Oh yeah, and Batman's royally pissed off that Tim disobeyed his orders to stay home, even though Batman probably would have ended up dead otherwise. The end. So, what did I think? Honestly, I got fond memories of this story from when I was a kid. And part of it was because of how quickly I ended up picking up all of these issues. See, back in the old days, when kids were just starting with collecting, you pretty much got comics when you could. But... You couldn't always make it to a comic book store. As a matter of fact, you might have only been able to do that just a few times per year. So, my generation, we had to rely on supermarkets and gas stations and bookstores in the mall and places like that to get our comics. And I gotta tell you, that made collecting comics a pretty neurotic and uneven experience sometimes. And that's basically what happened with all three chapters of Shadowbox. 
at that point, I hadn't been able to get out and pick up any comics for probably months by that point. I, don't get me wrong. I picked up Batman number 466 like ages before this. But there hadn't been a chance to get any new comics for a long time. And then one night, I happened to be at some gas station or another, and I noticed that Batman number 467 was sitting over on the comic shelf. So I picked it up. The very next night, I was at Walden Books in my mall, the local mall here, and saw Batman number 468 laying around. So I picked that up too. The very next night after that, I stopped by an Apple Tree supermarket, which is a grocery store chain here in Houston, and there was Batman number 469 on the comic rack waiting to be picked up as well. So I collected all three chapters of this story in three days. I even picked them up in the proper chronological order too, which that's the part that I like the most. So... Of course I read all three chapters in pretty fast succession with one another. And because of that, Shadowbox has always seemed like one big story to me, rather than a three-part comic book. One of the main conflicts of the storyline is Bruce wanting to keep Tim out of harm's way. Understand, he's got no qualms whatsoever about taking Tim into battle. In part one, he even remarks to himself of how much Tim's growing and learning. But that all changes when it comes out that Tim's a target in all this. And understand, in comic book time, it really wasn't that long ago that Jason Todd died. So Batman's still carrying the weight of that around with him. And so he's not in any kind of mood to risk Tim's safety. If there's even a chance that King Snake's still alive and gunning for Robin... Batman won't even think twice about sidelining Tim until this all gets sorted out. And for Tim's part, he's kind of a brat about it. He doesn't understand that Jason's death put the fear of God into Batman. He and Batman just don't see eye to eye about this at all. As a matter of fact, this is a minor subplot that Chuck Dixon mostly stuck with for the first few years of Tim's tour of duty as Robin. Batman was usually unwilling to place Tim in overly dangerous situations. It's one thing to go up against a couple of thugs who don't even have guns. Batman knows Tim can handle that. But Batman thinks there are some situations that are just too big for Tim right now. It's true here, and it's still true in other Chuck Dixon stories. Speaking of which... Shadowbox, as a storyline, really plays as a sequel to the first Robin miniseries from 1991. I mean, for one thing, it's by the same basic creative team, so I guess in that way, how could it not be a follow-up? The first Robin miniseries is where Tim got his stripes as a superhero. He learned how to be, but also how not to be. Those experiences did a lot to shape who he is and give him the confidence he needs in order to be Robin. Now, if you would just spare me for just a minute, I'm going to get a drink of my Coke here. Anyway, as I was saying, 
Those experiences from the first Robin miniseries, they did a lot to shape who Tim Drake is and give him the confidence that he needs to be Robin. Not just wear the outfit, to be what Batman needs him to be. But here's the thing. Nothing's free in life. In learning all this, Tim pissed off a lot of people. He ended up getting crosswise with uh, King Snake. Lynx, all of the ghost dragons, and very possibly Lady, uh, Lady Shiva. But of them all, it's logical that King Snake would probably want to get even. In fact, one, one major thing that uh, Chuck Dixon accomplished with the Robin miniseries and other stories over the years is giving Tim Drake a kind of, a, a sort of a rogues gallery all his own. Then as now, it works for me that, that King Snake is, he's really a Robin villain more than a Batman villain. And that's a, big, uh, that's a big part of this story's emotional impact, at least for me. Everybody wondered how Batman would do against King Snake one-on-one. Now, yeah, King Snake wants to kill Robin. There's no doubts there. But there's also no way that Batman's going to let that happen. So what are we going to do about that? The showdown between King Snake and, and Batman is actually pretty good. It's organic to the story and the characters. And I gotta tell you, it goes really well. In the Robin miniseries, everybody talked about how Sir Edmund is Mr. Badass Supreme, the most dangerous man in the whole world and all that shit. So you can't help but worry for Batman a little bit when he finally crosses King Snake's path. But in short order, Batman dispenses with King Snake. I mean, it's not even much of a fight once Batman evens the odds with those night vision goggles. Batman pretty much kicks the snot out of him, and then that's the end of that. So I guess in that way, it is a little bit anticlimactic, but at the same time, it's still fun to watch Batman totally dominate King Snake. And to kind of go back to the character stuff for just a minute, another interesting thing at play here is Tim's decision to come to Batman's rescue. And I guess I mention it because I hadn't really realized just how much and how often disobedience factors into the Bruce-Tim dynamic. Oh, Bruce-Tim. Huh. I didn't even think about that before I said it out loud. Okay. So I don't mean the guy, Bruce-Tim. What I mean is Bruce Wayne and Tim Drake. Basically, how often... Disobedience factors into the Bruce Wayne-Tim Drake dynamic. Because it does. Back in Identity Crisis from Batman number 455 to number 457, Tim disobeys Batman's orders to stay home and ends up saving his life as a result. That is what ultimately convinces Bruce that Tim's ready to become Robin. The same basic thing happens here. Batman accidentally gets in over his head, but... Luckily, Tim disobeyed orders to stay out of it, and in the process, he saves Batman's life. But unlike last time, Tim's in deep shit over this. Last time, Bruce gave Tim an order. And as with the military, Bruce expected Tim to obey. But even in the military, there's a time and a place to disobey orders. Tim's ability to recognize that is why Bruce realized he's ready to become Robin. But that was back in Identity Crisis. 
here in Shadowbox, Bruce lashes out, even though superficially, the situations are basically identical. But here's the rub. Back in Identity Crisis, Batman was the target. Everything that happened was really just an elaborate conspiracy to lure Batman into the Scarecrow's trap. Here, the stakes are totally reversed. Robin's the target. Everything Batman does, every action he takes in this story, is designed to protect Tim from King Snake and the Ghost Dragons. I mean, yeah, the Ghost Dragons have been totally routed, thanks to Batman and issue number 469. And let's face it, King Snake's not getting back up anytime soon either. You could even go so far as to say, then, that Tim, he was never in any real danger by the time he showed up. But here's the thing. None of that matters. None of it matters because Batman's worried sick over losing Tim the same way that he lost Jason. It doesn't matter that Batman's protectiveness of Tim is irrational and borderline paranoid. That's Batman's reference point. And Tim totally pissed on all that when he came to the rescue in the third part of the story. Batman was able to recognize Tim's ability to understand tactics and strategies and when to disobey back in Identity Crisis because ultimately Tim was never the real target of all that bullshit. But he is the target here in Shadowbox and that's what makes the difference. Basically, Batman's emotionally compromised over this. And you can't help thinking that Tim may be ready to become Robin, but... Maybe Batman's not quite ready for Tim to be Robin. Maybe not yet. I mean, yeah, sure. Intellectually, Bruce knows that Tim can handle it. But on an emotional level, Bruce is almost irrationally afraid of what might happen to Tim if things ever go sour. Bruce is totally justified in feeling this way. And Tim's totally justified in feeling pissed off about it. That's good writing. You give both characters logical, defensible points of view, and then you put them in conflict with each other. Nothing about this is forced. Nothing's contrived, and you can build and sustain real drama that way. It works. And leave it to Chuck Dixon to, to always be the master of this, the architect of it. So it's just great. I love it. Now, the art is by Tom Lyle, and there's an entire group of people out there who view, I guess would probably view that as a negative. And honestly, based on Tom Lyle's work in Spider-Man, I can totally see that. But what we have here is, I guess, a Tom Lyle before he kind of went off the rails when he, by the time he started working on Spider-Man. Here, the art is dark, but it's not really too dark. Makes sense? And I don't know. That works for me. I'm Don't get me wrong. I like an incredibly dark Batman story as much as the next guy. But that really shouldn't be... That shouldn't be how things are every single time. And Tom Lyle's style sort of lends itself to a more superhero-ish, high-adventure type, you know, type of tone and approach to the material. And at least in this vintage of his career, I think he did it incredibly well. And so, anyway, so that's that. I guess what I'm saying is I'm not, at least in this phase of his career, I am not a Tom Lyle basher. So, 
I think that's pretty much it for the Shadow Box storyline. So what I'm going to do is just take a quick break, play a couple promos, and I'll be right back with some more Batman comics in just a moment. May 30th, 2011, DC Comics announced the historic renumbering of all their superhero titles, and the internet broke in half. Critics and naysayers abounded. Confusion reigned across fandom. What'll I do? What'll I do? What an unusual view! Not to mention the first reactions to the Supergirl costume. I hated her so much. It, it, the, it, flame, flames, flames on the side of my face, breathing, breath, heaving breaths, heaving. But then the books actually hit. And opinions... He likes it! He likes it! Opinions began to change. The New 52 Adventures of Superman is a monthly podcast where John Wilson, J. David Weider, and Michael Kaiser take a look at each of the adventures of Superman and his family of characters in Action Comics. You know the deal, Metropolis. Treat people right or expect a visit from me. The Superman who appeared six months ago could hurdle skyscrapers and toss trucks around. Now it's faster, now it's stronger. How soon before it can't be stopped? Superboy. If resolving a situation for him is going to get me out from under these people once and for all, that's a small price to pay for freedom. Release the Superboy. Supergirl. Okay. Giant metal creatures. Falling from the sky. Speaking in clicks and beeps. Father would love this dream. And Superman. You could do so much good. We could do so much good. I am doing good, Lois. Clark's such a loner. Never really lets anyone get close to him. The New 52 Adventures of Superman. Available the first of every month on iTunes and at new52superman.libsyn.com. Why do you think superheroes are so important? People need heroes because they need somebody to inspire them, something to aim for, somebody to try to be like. One is the man of tomorrow, with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. The other, the caped crusader carrying out a solemn vow to spend his life warring on all criminals. For seven decades, they've been the world's finest heroes. They've teamed on radio, comics, newspapers, animation, and more. And now, they're teaming up for a podcast. To the Batmobile. Let's go. Up! 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 
Atomic batteries to Turbines to speed. Superman and Batman celebrates more than 70 years of the world's finest team with randomly chosen stories featuring the Man of Steel and the Dark Knight. Superman and Batman, featuring your two favorite heroes in one podcast together. Find it today at greatcrypton.com. Okay, I'm back now, and I've got some more Batman comics to talk about. You see, when I was younger, I followed Batman pretty loyally. But I was a kid buying comics on a pretty limited budget, I mean, let's face it. So, when all said and done, Superman was always my top priority. If buying Superman meant having to miss issues of Batman, so be it. Now, what I'm saying here is that basically a lot of my uh, Batman collecting was done in uh, back issues. Not all of it. <laughs> Not nearly all of it. But a good bit of it. And that includes Detective Comics number 654 through number 656, a story entitled The General. Written by Chuck Dixon and drawn mostly by Michael Netzer with an assist from Tom Mandrake. The premise of it's actually pretty simple. An incredibly gifted kid with a sky-high IQ and the delusions of grandeur to match one day decides to become a modern-day military genius along the lines of uh, Napoleon. And that's probably about as good an introduction as anything for uh, Batman number 655. Or sorry, Detective Comics number 654, I should say. The General, Part 1 entitled The God of War. While Batman continues his relentless war against uh, gang violence in the streets of Gotham City, psychotic military cadet Ulysses H. Armstrong observes uh, observes him from afar to begin his own war so that he can gain control of Gotham City. Armstrong at first is convinced that Batman was merely an urban legend, but soon realizes his existence is very real. Sometimes he has allies, but much of the time, Batman fights alone. He's always outnumbered, unarmed, and victorious. Armstrong, an expert when it comes to tactical, basically an expert tactical mind, views Batman as the ultimate opponent. Cemented in the belief that a man may be judged by the strength of his enemies, Ulysses becomes convinced that Batman is a fearsome enemy by any measure, but is also convinced he can destroy him. Armstrong's final goal is to rule rule crime in Gotham City, organize and unite the local street gangs into a disciplined military force to combat any opposition, and then let chaos rule in the streets. Armstrong reflects on his forgotten past as a young cadet at at a Valley Pines military academy, far away from Gotham City. He was often bullied due to his small size, but many underestimated or overlooked his keen mind. His father and mother cared little for him, sending him to to boarding school away from them because he was viewed as an inconvenience. 
Studious and reserved, Armstrong finds his only asylum in the Academy's massive library filled with books on military history. Here he studies the exploits of ancient, medieval, and modern battles and warfare, including the tactics of Charlemagne, Julius Caesar, and Napoleon Bonaparte. Finally consumed by boredom, frustration, and lack of acceptance at the Academy, Armstrong fakes his death and covers his escape by packing his only belongings into a burlap sack and pouring a can of gasoline, in, gasoline into the library at night before setting up everything on fire. Numerous cadets and staff, including the bullies who tormented, uh, tormented him so much, perish in the blaze. Having already decided to run away to Gotham City, Armstrong sneaks uh, on board an open freight car on a train and gets out in Gotham City's shipyards after dark. Here he enters a warehouse occupied by the Bengal Street Raiders, a group of drunken crooks who invest most of their time in pilfering liquor from ships in the, in the Gotham Bay. They terrorize anybody who enters a two-block turf they claim for their own simply because it's too low for even the other street gangs or the homeless people to inhabit it. The Bengal, street ra uh, the, the Bengal Raiders originally intend to kill Armstrong, with their knives, but he stops them with how much information he knows about them. The former cadet observes that they are the weakest of all Gotham street gangs, paying tribute to the 8th Avenue OGs and the Bad Boy Runners, two other of uh, Gotham City's street gangs. Ulysses makes the Bengal uh, radars an offer. They kill him, they lose the opportunity of their lives. They spare him, and he will arrange a raid on the National Guard Armory number 23, located inside of Gotham City. Later that night, Armstrong and the Bengal Street Raiders go into their first battle. Armstrong uses the classic strategy, a, variant, uh, a, a variation of the Trojan, uh, the Trojan horse tactic used by the ancient Greeks thousands of years earlier. The gang crash a car directly into, uh, into the street in front of the armory, prompting two guards to come and investigate. One guard suggests calling an ambulance, but the other plays into the general's hands and goes to, the injured, uh, goes to get the injured out of the car. After opening the door, however, the two guards are confronted by the barrels of several, uh, of several Colt revolvers and automatic pistols before they can reach their own sidearms. Armstrong waves a gun in the guards' faces and forces them to lead the Bengal raiders into the armory. The guards are disarmed and the gang forces one of them to unlock the weapons hanger for Armstrong. Prying open the crates of automatic weapons, Armstrong tries to order the gang leader, Chango, to carry out his orders, but the man stubbornly refuses. Drawing a machine pistol from a nearby locker, Armstrong asks if the Bengal raiders have prospered under his leadership. He then says it's time that Chango resigned for the good of his men. Armstrong then fires six shots through Chango, killing him instantly, before assuming com uh, complete leadership of the raiders. While one gang member watches the streets, the others load the crate of National Guard weapons into an armored truck. As the police arrive on the scene to investigate, Armstrong shoots the remaining National Guardsmen in the, in the armory before escaping in the armored truck out of a back entrance. He tells himself that he's enjoyed his first taste at combat. Sometime later, Police Commissioner Gordon summons Batman to Gotham City Police Department headquarters downtown with the bat signal. Batman's already been alerted to the holdup of the National Guard armory because he'd been monitoring police radio scanners in the Batmobile. Gordon observes that no one's claimed responsibility, but he suspects it's probably a terrorist organization, or maybe even part of the unending power struggle between Gotham street gangs. 
He also notes Black Mask as a, as a uh, possible suspect since the villain remains at large and reports that uh, the police are working to identify the corpse of Chango left behind in the armory. Batman absorbs this information and then says that one thing's for certain. With all the weaponry seized, whoever's responsible will be heard from again and soon. Even as Batman and Commissioner Gordon converse on the roof of the uh, police headquarters, Ulysses Armstrong, now dubbed the General, puts on a coat pilfered from a National Guardsman over his cadet uniform and relocates the gang to the abandoned Gotham City Food Distribution Center, now a sprawling but abandoned crumbling uh, infrastructure on a condemned property in the industrial section. The Bengal Street Raiders are uncomfortable in, in the new conditions, but the newly dubbed General reminds them that the Gotham City Police are probably already investigating their old hideout since Chango was wearing his, his Raider uniform when he was killed. Armstrong outlines his master plan for the Bengal Street Raiders. Stop being a gang and become a uniformed fighting force. Gotham is the battlefield. The plan is to take over the large gangs, unite them, and use them to fill their ranks. The General renames his gang, the War Dogs, and tells them that their next major battle will be the following night. He then sleeps with his machine pistol atop an empty ammunitions crate, confident of victory. He's assured of the Raiders' loyalty, at least until they've tasted first blood. Across the city the next night as it begins to snow, detectives Harvey Bullock and Rene Montoya visit the 8th Avenue OGs since Chango was identified as a Bengal Raider and the OGs are the, are, are the Raiders' dominant and most hated rivals. Bullock suspects that the Raiders stole the weaponry from the National Guard Armory to settle a debt with the rival gang, so he and Montoya have decided to stake the OG's common gathering area for any action. Pulling up behind several wrecked cars, Bullock and Montoya try not to appear obvious as they watch the OG's from afar. Meanwhile, Batman's also reached the same conclusion and, oblivious to the two detectives, watches the entire scene from a nearby rooftop. Their patience is rewarded as, within minutes, the Bengal Raiders, now the War Dogs, drive towards the, the OGs and their armored truck, firing in, into the other gang with assault rifles. The unarmed OGs make easy targets in their purple gang colors, and most of them are soon shot dead and down in, in uh, the snow, with the gang leader, Donnie T, barely managing to take cover in time. Batman swoops down uh, onto the scene from above, beating up three of the war dogs with his fists and feet, much to the fascination of the general. Detective Bullock, meanwhile, requests backup on his police radio. However, the general drives his armored truck directly into the unmarked squad car, causing it to crash, but with minimal damage to the armored truck. The general fires his machine pistol wildly at Batman, wounding him, but uh, swerves away and escapes with his gang once Detectives Bullock and Montoya join the fight. The two police officers fire on the fleeing war dogs, but their bullets only bounce off the armored truck as the general makes his getaway. Detective Montoya is frustrated as this means she must fill out a vehicle damage report and now a shots fired report along with it. She turns to look for Batman, but only discovers a trail of blood in the snow. Meanwhile, Batman manages to stop his more serious wounds on his arm, with a bandage made from the tattered remains of his cape, but he's still bleeding seriously by the time he manages to get back to the Batcave in the Batmobile. Staggering out, staggering out of the car to Alfred Pennyworth's horror, Batman gasps that he was shot with Teflon-coated bullets. Alfred explains that he heard about the battle on the police radio and then hurries off to get a medical kit. 
He offers painkillers, but Batman insists he won't take anything that'll uh, make him drowsy. He also orders Alfred not to tell Robin about the incident so that his partner won't needlessly worry. The Dark Knight observes that the current situation with the General is more than a simple escalation of gang violence. It's something far more sinister. While Batman recovers from his injuries in the Batcave, the surviving members of the OGs come to negotiate with the General, since they can't match the War Dog's superior weaponry, and also can't afford another massacre like the one earlier that night. The General's appearance is now complete, attired in military fatigues and combat boots, with the sides of his head shaved into the shapes of five stars to indicate his rank. He's turned the abandoned Gotham Food Distribution Center into a virtual military command headquarters, complete with a map of Gotham City and armed snipers on the roof. The OGs are now led by Shades, a balding man nicknamed for his odd sunglasses. The general requests to see Donnie T, known leader of the OGs, but Shades explains that he and another gang member fatally shot Johnny or Donnie because he refused to allow negotiations with the war dogs. The general asks the OGs to join his ranks as war dogs and then outlines his plan for the conquest of Gotham City to Shades. He insists that the local mafia are soft and ripe for easy destruction because they've weakened each other by spending too much time warring over pointless questions of honor and turf. Armstrong's convinced that the key to victory is uniting enough gangs under the war dogs to buy the other gangs off and recruit them with money, just as Alexander the Great did with mercenaries in his day to help conquer, uh, conquer Persia. The general is ha has high ambitions. Sweep aside feeble resistance by the established Gotham mob, follow a strategic uh, for, or rather, follow a strategy for a winter campaign, and then rule Gotham City by the next Easter. However, there are four major parties he's going to have to deal with first. The Bad Boy Runners, one of the largest gangs in Gotham, Black Mask, the Gotham City Police Department, and finally, the Batman. The General wishes to bring the Bad Boy Runners into his ranks because their numbers are legion, and they have successful operations which provide them with a rich war chest. He wishes to make uh, Black Mask, the rising star of established organized crime in Gotham, bow to pressure and submit to the war dogs, dealing with them as respected equals, or else risk being crushed. The general also wishes to make the Gotham City Police Department fear him and to stay out of his way. He believes this can be accomplished by convincing the police that the war dogs' ranks are closed and they are undefeatable. There's one more party to deal with yet, however. Batman. He will not be frightened, and he cannot be bought off. Therefore, the general views the hero as his greatest enemy, one which must die. The General, Part 2, entitled The Anvil of War. Batman's keeping an eye on the bad boy runner's turf when suddenly an explosion and gunfire marks the beginning of an attack on the gang. The attackers are the War Dogs, formerly the uh, Bengal Street Raiders. The general attacks the leader of the runners, whose name is Bojack. Batman goes to stop the attack, but is forced to rescue the general, as his priority is to save the boy's life from falling off the top of a building, because Batman doesn't realize that this boy is in fact the leader of it all. The effort of such a feat causes him to, uh, causes him to uh, uh, tear the sutures made by Alfred caused by a recent bullet wound. Batman was weak, and the general attacks him from behind and knocks him to the ground with a recently deceased, or rather, alongside a recently deceased Bojack. 
The General celebrates his victory by making plans to attack the Black Mask Gang. When he interrogates a couple of false facers, one of, one of them refuses to tell, to tell him anything and is killed for his defiance. The second one tells him that Black Mask, uh, tells him all about Blast, uh, Black Mask since Batman took out most of his gang. Glad to hear this, the General starts his plan to attack the last of his enemies, the Gotham City Police Department. Batman goes undercover as a homeless guy, and when he finally locates the General's base, he goes there only to find it empty, except for a, a model of South Lintown that depicts a military-style assault on the 43rd Precinct building. Realizing that nobody would leave a hideout without a rear guard, Batman realizes the plan is to be executed tonight, and so he heads out to help the Gotham Police. The General Part 3, entitled Besieged. The General and his troops lay siege to a, a precinct building in the Lintown area of Gotham, but are defeated in close quarters by Batman and the trapped police officers. The police are very surprised to learn that a boy organized all the gangs in this way. Meanwhile, Bane and his men continue to observe Batman from afar. The end. So, what did I think? Well, as I've said before, collecting comics is a pretty haphazard thing when you're a kid, so I had to pick these issues up as back issues. I read them all in one go, and because of that, I've probably got a little bit of a different perspective on this story than a lot of the people who bought these issues as they were coming out brand new onto the racks. Anyway, it's, it's interesting to note that for a long time, this story was about as dark as the general would ever get. I mean, the general as a character. This is about as dark as he'd ever get. Later, Chuck Dixon would bring the General back for the Solo Robin monthly series that was going on, you know, later on in the 90s after Night's End. And that was where he he wrote the General to be a little bit lighter to match the overall tone of the Solo Robin ongoing monthly series. But right here in Detective Comics where he debuted, he's a cold-blooded fucking killer, even though he's probably just a little bit younger than Tim Drake is. Anyway, all around, it's pretty easy to believe that the gangs of Gotham City would eventually rally behind the general. He starts small and then gradually unites every small-time thug, nobody, and reject under his command. He offers them leadership, rewards, and more than enough violence to go around, so I totally buy that they'd follow him. Eventually. Now... To talk about this story at all is to talk about the cameo appearances from Bane, Bird, Trog, and Zombie in Part 3. And to talk about that is to talk about Nightfall. And to talk about that is to talk about how the central premise of Nightfall is an abject crock of shit from beginning to end, but... Having acknowledged all of that, I'm going to save my Nightfall remarks for some other time. Anyway, by and large, this story works for me because the General's a believable enough villain. On top of all that, he d it, it just doesn't seem like it's a big stretch to me to believe that some bored rich kid with absolutely no conscience would eventually try to become a modern-day Julius Caesar or Napoleon. And on that basis, street gangs are the logical choice for someone with the right type of charisma and leadership to use to build an army. 
at the same time, though, it's easy to think that the general would be overlooked both by Batman and the cops during a firefight because, I mean, honestly, who'd expect to see some little kid leading a huge gang of murderers and thieves into an assault on a police station? Anyway, now there are a couple of things here that just really bother me. For one thing, I'm really sick and tired of seeing Batman uh, go into battle when he's in less than ideal shape. You know, when he's basically not in peak condition. A lot of times we see him uh, go into battle anyway, and I'm sorry, I just, I've never bought that. If Batman is anything less than in perfect condition, he'll take as many nights off as he needs to, to heal, so that when he comes back, he's in perfect condition. I've never really bought into the idea that this is a Batman who'd go out when he's been all chewed up and shot and stabbed and blown up and all this other stuff, you know, deprived of sleep and all that. I just, I've never been able to picture that. I've never been able to believe that. You know, this is a guy that trained himself to the absolute peak of physical human perfection, and he'd want to stay there. And so even if it's just, you know, uh, just a minor injury that he got from a knife, he would want to stay home until he until he was fully recovered from that before going back out on the streets again. I just don't buy it whenever Batman is shown to be, you know, totally willing to go out there and play injured. Yeah, I know, that supposedly makes him look all badass and everything and how tough he is, but it's just fucking, it's impossible to believe. Anyway, but I guess, you know, maybe that's just nitpicking, I don't know, but it just, it needs to be said, so... Anyway, now moving away from that stuff, the first two parts of this story were drawn by Michael Netzer. Now, I have no idea what behind-the-scenes bullshit was going on. I have no clue why he left uh, Detective Comics when he did. But he drew the first two issues of this, and I gotta say, his, his take on Batman was very much of the kind of crooked-ear, urban commando type that Bob Kane originally drew back in the beginning. And guys, understand, this is a pretty bold little piece of inspiration here on Netzer's, uh, Netzer's part, because at the time that these comics were coming out, everybody wanted to be either Neil Adams or Jim Apero, or maybe, to a lesser degree, Norm Brayfogle. And so, Netzer's art makes for a pretty dark and atmospheric take on Batman, and I think it actually blends really well with uh, the street-level uh, action that's happening on every page. Tom Mandrake takes over uh, for the third and final part of the story, and look, don't get me wrong, for as awesome as his work is, I just wish Netzer could have finished what he started and, and done at least all three chapters of the, uh, of the comic before, you know, leaving. Don't get me wrong, I love Tom Mandrake, I love his work, it's top quality stuff, and especially in the issue that he drew, part three, you can tell that he really loves these characters. I just like having consistency in my comics, and there's really not a whole lot of that going on in the art here. Chapters 1 and 2, drawn by Michael Netzer, and then out of nowhere, here comes Tom Mandrake to draw part 3. Still, the other way of looking at that is that if you must have some type of fill-in artist, well, it's hard to get much better than Tom Mandrake, so, so there's that. But anyway, so all in all, I seriously dig this storyline. And to my knowledge, it's never been reprinted in, a, in a, uh, any kind of trade paperback or anything like that. Which means that the only real way to read this story 
is probably by picking up the original comics, by searching for the back issues and the uh, back issue bins. But at the same time, that's only likely to set you back about two or three bucks per issue. And let's face it, it's not like these comics are really all that hard to find either. So all around, this was a good little Batman story, even though history seems to only want to remember it as one of the preludes to Nightfall. But honestly, I just, I don't relate to that. To me, the general, as a storyline, it's got a lot more to offer than just that. So, anyway, so I think that's about it for me this time. So come back next week when I talk about The Punisher Max, number 7 through 12. This is an imaginary podcast, which may never have happened. The Short Box Showcase. But then again may have. About a father and daughter. I'm Professor Allen. And I'm Emily. Who came from Ohio and talked about comics. Walking Dead. Tintin. Black Lightning. White Tiger. It tells of their rise to glory, when the great guests were yet to be booked. Let's put it this way, Shogun Warriors wasn't going to win any Eisners. And the great feats of editing not yet performed. This is Ultra 7, this is Ultraman Jack, and this is Ultraman Taro, and this is Ultraman Leo, and this is Ultra- Of how they spoke at length. Continuity is really the brainchild of nitpicking nerds the world over. But to be fair, the best kind of confession is the Force Confession. And reviewed in brief tales that explore creatively the bounds of a given character's history. Red Sun is wonderful with a very strange ending. Of brilliant creators before their fall from grace. This is the era where Miller is at the height of his creative and artistic powers, and the ability of strong writing to encapsulate and transcend its time. Flash of Two Earths by Gardner Fox. This is an imaginary podcast. Aren't they all? Shortbox Showcase is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Check us out on the web at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search in iTunes for Relatively Geeky or Shortbox Showcase. And remember, we're not experts. We're just family. You know, a dear friend once said to me, it's a lot of fun when everyone's a dork of some sort or another. And... I thought not only are those words to live by, it's an idea worth celebrating. So that's why I created Pop Culture Affidavit, a podcast that is about, well, let's just say it's completely random. (laughs) One episode might be about movies, the next might be about comics, the next might be about music. All that matters is that I'm giving you a recap and critique of stuff I enjoy and you're having as much fun as I am, or at least I hope. So join me, Tom Panneries, for Pop Culture Affidavit, the sworn testimony of a dork. You can find a new episode at least once a month at popcultureaffidavit.podomatic.com and notes, essays, and other stuff once a week at popcultureaffidavit.com.
Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-S-M-A-G-N-U-S-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me. And I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the two true freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promo section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsecor of Milan, Italy. <laughs>